the idea that why don't we do something about that was quite alien. It, it, was, it was quite. It wasn't that popular necessarily across the whole industry. The idea that you could actually go out and do something differently, and you, if you don't like what you've got, you could actually go out and change that. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. After years of buses being treated as a second-class mode, the national bus strategy is full of positivity and ambition. There are many reasons why this happened, and one of the reasons is Katie Taylor. In an industry with a tendency to keep its head down and focus on the next morning's run out, Katie has been one of the few people constantly championing and cheerleading buses at a national level. Now, in her last few months as Chief Strategy and Customer Officer at the Go Ahead Group, she is this week's guest on the Freewheeling Podcast. Katie, welcome. Thank you, Thomas. So tell me a bit about the process that led to the National Bus Strategy. If I read Boris's prologue, you get the sense that he loves buses so much he just couldn't wait to get started. Is, is, is that how it actually was in reality? Well, I think from our perspective, um, I mean, it does help that David Brown obviously worked with Boris when they were both at, uh, you know, Mayor of London and at TfL. Of course, they're they're old mates, aren't they? They are old mates, and and um, and from where we work in our offices, we we do see him and bump into him and have done in the years preceding his um, premiership. Um, but for us, it was really about trying to get buses to have even the same pegging as rail. It wasn't even the case of necessarily more profile than that. Um, and so a lot of work went into understanding why people didn't care about buses. And the reality was they weren't talked about. They weren't talked about outside of the Department for Transport. And even in the Department for Transport, they weren't really talked about that much and, and a fairly small cadre of people. And um, so part of it was just talking to a much, much wider audience about all of the things that buses bring and all the benefits and uh, and all the sort of the, the economic and the social and the health and well-being advantages. They just hadn't really been spoken about. And I think if you speak to people in the, who work in the bus industry, they sort of take it very much as a given. Well, of course, of course, it does all these things. Of course, it takes people to employment and education. But we weren't really bringing other people along with us. We weren't really talking about it. Um, and I think the biggest learning for me has been that um, as an industry, transport talks about itself as an industry and it talks to itself within the industry. And there's a lot of the industry. And actually, there's not that many industries. So retailing doesn't see itself as an industry. It sees itself as a means to an end. We retail because we're trying to sell eggs, baked beans, shoes, whereas rail and bus see themselves as an industry. And so we're very, very insular. And as long as it was in the trade magazines and as long as our individual you know, transport minister knew about it, then that was all OK. It was about saying, no, surely the only reason we exist in any form is to facilitate other things. It's to facilitate people getting out, getting to other places, seeing people, you know, going to places of work and you need to talk to those people the people who are responsible for unemployment and reducing that people responsible for increasing skills provision people responsible for reducing loneliness they're the people we needed to talk to about how buses can deliver that and you really see that with for example you know bikes where buses and bikes have both been the subject of big national strategies recently and they're both things that boris johnson personally talks about how much he loves and the bike lobby have been very successful at, at showing all the other things that cycling, for example, can do. And you feel like there's this enormous sort of army of people who, are, who want more stuff for bikes. Yet more, many, many more people use buses than bikes. But you've never felt there's that same, that, there's that same groundswell of support for, 
for buses. And is that because of the way the industry talks about itself, in your view, started with the fact that it talks about itself as an industry? Yes, well, I think that's part of the problem. But I also there's a big socio-demographic piece here, and it, and it plays the same for rail, which is um, almost all your government ministers will take the train, especially if they're coming down from constituencies that are outside London. Um, you know, we know that the cycling lobby has some really powerful, influential, and and let's be honest, affluent and uh, advocates. And bus users don't have that. Bus users really struggle to have a voice. They really struggle to, to get that voice heard. And they tend to be the less affluent in society. And we know that the young and the old tend to be the people who don't necessarily have the high, the strongest voices because they're not in employment. They're not, you know, sitting at desks every day with computers with access to to decision makers. So I think I think buses' voice has gone, you know, significantly unheard um, over decades because of that that sort of socio demographic point. One thing you said earlier, which I want to pick up for a minute, is the fact that um, you're based in the same building as Conservative HQ, which probably a lot of people don't realise about the Go Ahead Group. But I wonder how, how how much did it help that you were running into ministers on a daily basis? I mean, to any of my listeners, if you ever want to, to feel very important on a particular day, arrange a meeting with someone from Go Ahead on the day of a major political crisis. So you could step out of the office and all the cameras flash. It's like, really, you don't want me. Um, but but you know, they are based, yeah, they're literally the floor above. Tory party headquarters so how 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 much did that help um a, a very 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 small amount i would say in reality i mean most government ministers don't come and go it tends to be the chairman of the the party um and then during campaigning it tends to be you know the odd visit from mayor of london candidates or in this case prime ministerial candidates and um, it was more about actually um we did see boris a few times you know ex mayor of london he was sort of he was still an mp and, and, and he was around but, but you're right i think i think he was always quite passionate about transport um, and that's obviously helped and you know in other podcasts that you've run you've d- talked about the impact that that's had on you know the um the William Shapps review and on and on the bus strategy so I think I think you know clearly having that support makes a difference but I like to think that we created an environment that meant that when you talk about buses people were receptive to that people wanted there to be a bus strategy at the point at which you said there was funding for buses and that they wanted the bus strategy we worked um, a lot with Darren Shirley, who's now at DFT, but when he was at Campaign for Better Transport, and they were really, really good, um, you know, vocal supporters of why we needed to do um, more for those bus users. So I think, think, you know, as always, it's a culmination of the right things at the right time. But I certainly feel if we hadn't done what we did, we wouldn't necessarily have got the the positive outcome we've got at the moment. So one, I mean, one thing I've really noticed is that you are one of the only voices championing public transport within one of the PLCs. And there are other people, you mentioned Darren Shirley, who obviously um, is a experienced, was an experienced pro-public transport campaigner before he joined the DFT. And there's lots of other pro-public transport campaigners. Um, and there are quite a few local voices that sort of push local bus matters. But we've got these huge national brands and national companies and yet I, I literally can't think of another PLC level voice who has been pushing public transport with the energy and the profile that you have. Why is that, do you think? Um, and that's a difficult one, because for me, it's such a natural thing to do, because, as I said before, we, we only we only exist for the sake of our, our customers and our passengers. We, we don't exist for any other purpose. If we're not moving people and helping facilitate those, you know, physical connections, then, then there really is no point to a bus or a, a rail industry. Um, I, I think that the point about being quite insular, I think the industry tends to look in on itself and spends a lot of time 
looking at and worrying about itself rather than looking externally um, at what's happening um, outside of the industry. I, I also think there's something about this quite a sort of a public sector attitude that runs through um, through the transport sector. So, so you know, I know there's been lots of talk about whether William Shapps is, is sort of nationalising the railway. Well, the reality is, is that um, most people who work in the railway and the, and the bus companies um, have, have been um, were nationalised anyway out coming out of the Second World War. So these are mostly public sector people. I mean, a, a huge number of our leaders, um, certainly on the rail side, came from British Rail graduate schemes or London Transport graduate schemes, which were run by the public sector. And, and the reality is that the public sector isn't customer focused. The public sector doesn't have a requirement to serve customers. It doesn't have a, a need to make sure it provides the best services for its customers. Otherwise, their customers will do something else. It serves a very different uh, agenda and a very different set of masters. So, so I think that legacy of public sector thinking within the transport industry, I think, has had a huge impact on the types of people it employs and has in its business and therefore the types of conversation um, that happen. And I mean, I recall going back to, I mean, I've been a go ahead nine years. Um, I recall going back, I mean, we would have lots and lots of conversations which didn't have the word customer in. We would have board meetings with operating companies that didn't talk about customers. Um, and that that amazed me. And I, I just think it wasn't the mindset necessarily because, because of that background. But what about at a senior level? I mean, you know, the private sector bus companies you know, have a legacy in the public sector, as you said, but equally, they've been in the private sector for a long time and they need to grow if they're going to increase their own share price valuation, blah, blah, blah. And you know, surely there's no better way of doing that than to champion the very product that you sell. I mean, and yet you don't get that sense that their leaders are out there saying, Buses are great. More people should use buses. And here's how everyone else can help with buses you know, in the way that, you, that, that you've been. But you know, not all of the people who run those organisations are ex-public transport, public sector. At least a lot of them come from other industries. That link back to the customer and therefore um, championing the customer experience just seems to be missing. Yeah, I think there are a number of factors in that. I mean, I think I slightly dispute your 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 um, assertion that a lot of the leaders in those businesses came from outside the sector. I think that's pretty much only happened over the last five years. Probably, really, if you look back, anyone who's who's in those leadership teams who's been around longer than that are transport through and through and have probably worked in transport for nigh on 20 years at least. Um, so I do think there's a huge amount of legacy thinking. And, and certainly if you sit around that board table at RDG, um, you know, they're all come from a very, very well-established public sector background um, in transport. Um, well, I think there's something here about that, that belief that it's derived demand. So sort mm -hmm. of if you build it, they will come, which I, I think you just don't get in other, um, uh, you know, privatised industries or other, you know, commercial industries where you absolutely live or die by what your customers do. Um, and, and there's a sort of a learned helplessness that, that sort of, like, well, you know, what can we do? We're not in charge of the roads and we have to do this for the local authority. And, and so we're sort of, you know, we're at the beck and call of politicians. And I think I, I think it's largely cultural. Um, and it's just getting out of that culture and saying, look, you know what, you're in charge of your own destiny. And this goes back to that bus strategy point, which was when people sort of bemoaned the fact that there wasn't a bus strategy and, and isn't it fair, unfair that we don't get all of this and cycling has got all this. You know, the idea that well, why don't we do something about that was quite alien. It, it, it was quite it wasn't that popular necessarily across the whole industry. The idea that you could actually go out and do something differently. And you, if you don't like what you've got, you could actually go out and change that. And I think. I think there is some sort of legacy thinking that that you, you're sort of at the whim of of 
political wins and don't necessarily have the power to do things about it. Whereas you're exactly right, which is especially in bus, you know, we can absolutely do everything we can to get that extra two or three customer fares that are going to make a real difference to to how successful the business is. That learned helplessness point really resonates to me. I mean, I very I very much feel that. And I, you know, one of my sort of things I bang on about a bit is the fact that if you look at the the websites of you know, organisations like CPT or RDG, which are theoretically the trade bodies of this industry, there's actually almost nothing on there about how to grow this industry, um, which feels like a real gap. And some of the big ask, the big transformational ask, like road pricing, which I know I do go on about, but I think you know, we've got a government that's about to lose £40 billion of tax revenue. They want solutions. We can offer a solution that massively benefits our customers, our users, and the climate. Why wouldn't we be the people arguing for this? Because if we don't argue for it, no one else will. And yet, you look at the the trade bodies that represent you know, these our industry, and there's, there's absolutely... There's absolutely nothing there at all about it. It's just something we don't seem to want to talk about. Well, I, I would take it even further, actually, which is I, I regularly pick up on press releases that have been issued by industry bodies, and they talk about the demise of the industry. <laughs> and they talk about, you know, will bus passenger numbers ever recover? Um, so only, what, in the last week, Transport Focus came out with something um, talking about how, I think it was how bus operators needed to do better with information and um, something else they were asking for. Um, and uh, RDG came out with a press release that you know was done with all the unions about this enabling agreement, talking about the demise of passenger numbers. I think well, look, as an industry and our own and transport, which is you know arguably part of the industry, but certainly is a um, is a, supposed to be a supporter of and an encourager of public transport. So two of our own organisations are basically talking about the demise or the reduction in passenger numbers. Um, of the bus and the rail network and I think well, why would you do that why on earth would you do that you you never hear Tesco's talk about you know that's it supermarkets are dead because they just wouldn't do that because they believe that they can create their own destiny so, and I'm totally the same and I mean I find it very frustrating when network rail as well talks about passenger numbers and we're never going to get it back mm. up again and I feel like saying how are we ever going to hit net zero if we don't move more people to public transport so hand on heart if I had a million pounds and I could invest it I would happily invest it in public transport because I genuinely believe that we won't hit net zero we won't hit the anti-obesity targets and the loneliness things if we don't move more people onto public transport. So not only should we not be talking about or how do passenger numbers recover, we should be talking about, you know, when we get to 100%, what do we do next? How are we going to get to 120 and 130% of pre-COVID numbers? After all, at the start of all this, bus only had a 10% market share. Therefore, you can look at that and say, what a fantastic opportunity for growth that is. Absolutely. And, and you, absolutely. So we, we talk about getting back to, you know, when will we get back to 100 percent? And I say, well, 100 percent is not the not the target at all. Our target should absolutely be higher than that. And um, we can't go back to I mean, the, the crowded, congested streets that we've got today. Um, climate change is getting worse. Carbon emissions are getting worse. Electric cars is not going to solve it, you know, let alone the fact that there's not enough power in the grid to do that. And, um, you know, we really do have to move more people to public transport and it's not going to be the answer to every journey for every person but as you say just a really small movement would make a massive difference to the number of cars off the road and the number of passengers taking public transport. So you talked about this learned helplessness point which I think is a really valid one but the sort of worry there would be that the experience of Covid when the the service kept running even when the passengers weren't there combined with the tone of the bus and the Williams reviews 
which see a much larger role for government ownership. Put those two things together and you could see that learned helplessness going up, not down over the next few years. I, I definitely think that's a danger. I think I feel quite differently about the bus strategy versus the William Shamps review. So the bus strategy, it, it sort of is everything we asked for. It is targets around um, journey times. It is bringing the local authority um, to the party to really look at bus infrastructure. I mean, bus stops, bus stops are little more than a flag on the side of a, a road and on a, a, a wet day like today, that's not very pleasant. Um, so, you know, really improving some of that infrastructure, improving those connections, bus priority measures. So I think the bus strategy it, it, it should be an accelerant, that growth to get to getting beyond those pre-COVID numbers. Um, and the fact you have to submit plans and you have to commit to things, I think is, is a real positive actually. So, so I, I hear your point about that it won't necessarily change the culture, but I think it will create a different way of working that doesn't allow that learned helplessness to say, well, it's somebody else's fault. Because when you're working in a partnership environment and, and you as an operator are doing your bit and the local authority is doing their bit and the central government is doing their bit, then actually you can't blame anyone because everyone's doing the bits that they need to do in order for you to, to hit success. So, so I actually think that's um, that that's really positive. On the Williams Shaps review, my concern about culture is that I think the worst aspects of the culture come from the the, the public sector mind, the sort of the defensive lack of accountability, um, learned helplessness, and I think that unfortunately is 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 even worse in in parts of it that are going to make up this sort of guiding mind or, or GB railways. The idea that you bring Network Rail and the DFT who don't have that customer focus at all, they don't have the commercial, innovative, entrepreneurial spirit that we don't have oodles of in, in the uh, franchises or in the operating companies, but we do have some. And I think you're going to lose the bits that you do have because I'm not sure it's going to be that attractive anymore. Um, and you're going to roll it, all those major decisions up into a body that's even bigger, even more of a behemoth, with even more bureaucracy. Um, and you're, you're asking the people who are in charge of running it to drive a massive culture change project, despite the fact that they sort of come from the legacy thinking that you're trying to change. I mean, I certainly worry about the culture of Great British Railways. You know, the, the network rail culture is fantastic at achieving a safe railway, which is its number one objective. And it's been spectacularly successful at that. But it's what you need to do to achieve an incredibly safe operating environment is almost the exact opposite of what you need to achieve a entrepreneurial you know, experimentation, risk-taking. You know, let's see what works. Let's see what we can test. Let's see what we can discover. Let's see what we can learn about customers, what works, what doesn't. Um, and it feels an incredibly difficult challenge to m achieve that culture of you know, entrepreneurial experiment and customer focus in an environment where nine-tenths of the people working there will be network rail people. Um, and that's not to criticise network rail for what they're good at, but it's saying what they're good at isn't what's needed in the guiding mind of the industry if it's going to re retain a focus on customers, which I desperately hope it does. Yeah, well, I have to say, as a, as a you know, as I said, I'm leaving the industry um, in a few weeks' time. I, I will be using buses and trains, and I certainly be using trains to get to work. And I, and I find it really depressing, actually, and, and really worrying that I just don't see how it's going to get any better um, if you're reducing the customer focus, if you're reducing the incentives within the train companies to do better for customers, to grow passenger numbers by providing a better service. I genuinely believe a vision for rail would be, you know, in five years time, you know, people come to this country and on holiday and they they make 
you know, taking railway journeys part of their holiday experience because it's such a good experience. Um, and you, you know, people, we could massively increase the number of people who use public transport and reduce car usage to rival some of the European cities that have got really significant um, public transport ridership. Um, so I believe we can do that. We've certainly got the infrastructure and, and the investment, but we need to have the culture that that backs that up. And I just I just don't see that in in the DFT or in Network Rail. And having led a culture change program across Grow Ahead for the last sort of six, seven years. It's really hard yards, really, really hard yards. And you absolutely need your senior team behind it. You have to have real clarity around what it is you're trying to achieve. And I and I don't see that in William Shapps at all. Um, and interesting, you know, everyone talks about, well, it's brilliant because it's it's clarified accountability. But I should give you two things, one of which is I'm pretty sure customers never said uh, you know, or you know, or the trains are the trains are really annoying um, because I don't know who's accountable. I'm pretty sure they don't like the trains because they run late, there's no space, um, or they don't understand what ticket to buy. Um, I'm pretty sure they've never said it's because they're not accountable. Uh, and also, what I think we've learned out of the financial crisis, actually, is that if you've got a problem with accountability, just adding more regulation and more control doesn't make people more accountable. It makes them spend more time managing to the regulations you've given them or trying to find a way around them. What you need is a culture of accountability where people understand what they're supposed to do they understand the spirit of what they're supposed to do they have freedom within a framework uh, and they deliver that and are empowered to deliver the right things i don't think you need absolute dotted i's and crossed t's to get accountability did you have any of these conversations with the um william shapps team when they were developing it what did they say if you did uh, I didn't personally. Lots of people across Go Ahead did, um, uh, and I absolutely made it very clear about um, customer at the heart of everything, and and uh, you know the danger I think of having network rail and um, and DFT. But uh, you know uh, they made the decisions that they felt they were able to make. So what would you, you're, as you say, you're leaving the industry now? What are the things you would like to see? You know, what's your passing message to the industry about what they should be focusing on in order to actually achieve the kind of positive change that? you want to see and have spent the last few years fighting for? Well, I'd want them to focus on customers. I want them, I mean, exactly, you know, I've heard you discuss it before, but William Shapps, the most detail that went into that was around industry structures. It wasn't about passenger outcomes. Passenger outcomes was very light on detail. It didn't talk about fares reform. Uh, it didn't talk about um, how we're going to better serve customers in the, you know, stations of the future. Um, it didn't say what, what we're going to do about rolling stock to make sure it's actually much better designed to, to accommodate more bikes and more active travel. They're the things customers care about. Um, so, 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 so what do I leave? What do I think would be better? I think a much, I actually think having somebody run GB Railway who is first and foremost customer focused. Um, and I would want to see somebody doing that in that role. And I don't believe that, that the current leadership um, that, that exists around that body and that, that are looking at that are the right people to do that. So, so that's, I guess that's where I would, I would have focused more times on customer outcomes and less times on, you know, introspection and looking at the industry. I'm guessing the national bus strategy is one of them, but what are the things from your time uh, in this, in this sector, which is now what, about nine years um, that, that you're most mm. proud of? Um, and what are the things that you sort of, what are the things that got away that you wish you'd been able to do or do more of in that time? So national bus strategy, definitely proud of. Um, very proud of um, of the culture change that we did at Go Ahead. So really 
pivoting the organization to be much more focused on its own people, actually, and empowering its own people to make the right decision for customers and then on customer outcomes. And just, you know, there really isn't a conversation happens now that doesn't, you know, include what does this mean for, for customers and for passengers? So um, I'm super proud of that. Um, the, the things that uh, the thing that we haven't quite done maybe as much of as I'd like to is diversity. And that diversity is as much a characteristic as it is about uh, alternative voices. So uh, to your your point right at the beginning, I mean, I'm a real an alternative voice. There is virtually no um, meeting I attend, no forum I sit on, no panel I speak at where I'm not a dissenting voice and I voice and I disagree with with you know a lot of my colleagues. Um, across the industry and I think that's a problem they it shouldn't I shouldn't stand out there should be lots of people saying the things I'm saying and I think that's a real difficulty within the industry is we don't have enough voices saying different things um, in different ways um, and, and getting the industry to a point where they're less defensive about some of that and they're, they're more you know eager to learn what these different views are and, and how things could be done differently um, so I feel, unfortunately, there's still quite a long way to go on that. So I think I, I would have liked to have moved diversity further forward um, in terms of its value genuinely being recognised um, in the business and in the industry than, than I've managed to do. And so thinking forward, you know, you're, you're going to be outside the industry, but looking back in for the next five years, what do you hope happens over the course of the next five years? Because we are entering an extraordinary period of change. There's no doubt about that. And based on what we've talked about so far, it feels like you've probably got some worries about what will happen and it might not be the same. What do you hope happens and what do you think might happen? Okay, what I hope happens is that on the bus strategy, I hope it lives up to its promise. I hope the enhanced partnerships bring bus operators and local authorities together, that the DFT manages to get the funding it needs to deliver on um, all the aspects of that they've promised and we still see a real renaissance in bus passengers. So in five years' time, what I want to see is um, you know you said bus is ten percent share of the market. I want it to see twenty five percent share of the market. I want to I want to hear about a second car scrappage scheme that has the highest take up out of any scrappage scheme ever, as everyone gets rid of their second cars and starts taking the bus. Um, so that's what I'd like to see on bus, and I believe that's that is achievable. Um, in rail, what I'd really like to see if, if it's going the way of of GB Railway, then I would like them to put in charge somebody from outside the industry with a really clear customer focus. Um, and, a, and a real drive to delivering the best thing for customers. Um, I would scoop up all of the commercial, um, strategic, comms, customer people that, that I think are going to struggle in the current contract structure within the operators and, and, and really put them in a guiding role within that organisation um, to really bring that insight into the DFT and into Network Rail about what it really is that customers want um, and how to how to cut through red tape to get things done quickly um, and responsively and, and sort of do some of the things that the public sector isn't perhaps so good at doing and, and really try and commercialise some of that organisation. So that's what I really hope will happen. Um, and I think rail can absolutely get that. I just hope it doesn't sort of go backwards for a couple of years before it goes forwards. And do you think those things will happen? I mean, yeah, if you, ha if you, if you were putting money on outcomes... Um, and you had to you had to buy a futures contract on the outcomes of the industry. Which one would you actually put your money on? I'd put my money on bus. Yeah, I'd happily put my money on bus because I believe that's got the right direction. I think it's got the potential. I think it needs some help, but it can absolutely get there. Um, in rail, I just find it more 
difficult to see. I mean, I genuinely see, I find it more difficult to see how bringing together, you know, several very large organizations into one even larger organization, which has a has a different culture to the one that you need to make this successful. Um, and then running it through the people who are already running those businesses in a particular way. So where are your specific concerns about how the William Shapps Review is actually going to work in future? Um, you know, Network Rail is by far the largest cause of delay minutes already. And that doesn't feel necessarily like that's a massive, you know, green marker um, of doing a really good job. Um, and and, and I, the other thing is stations. I mean, William Shapps talks about stations and, and centralising all that as well. Um Historically, network rail managed stations have had the worst um, customer satisfaction scores. So, you know, for, for Southeastern GTR, Victoria was always anyone who went through Victoria had worse satisfaction than, than went through other stations. So, again, the idea of, of giving that station a state to network rail to manage just seems a bit bizarre. I mean, I'll give you one more example, which is the one part of the industry that actually was working in the way a proper market works. Um, is um, ticket purchasing and you know the fact that there are multiple um, websites and apps there's you know independent retailers so train line there's also the individual train companies and there's also anyway there's loads of different ways you can buy all your tickets so across the whole country and, and they're going to make turn that into one website and one app which as soon as it snows and everyone hits that website I, I fear that the website will go down and then no one will be able to buy a ticket and what happens if that doesn't get the investment it needs and it doesn't move quickly enough because everybody's going to be feeding in all of their, their wants and desires. And I mean, just for two, two franchises, we, we, we make amendments to our ticket booking engine, you know, monthly. So we've got new features or new tickets or, or new ways of working. Um, so imagine feeding all of those into one project management team on one interface and I, and I just feel like saying, well, that, well, how is that going to make it better for customers? And so final question from me, why do you think it happened then? Because you know, I think that the cultural concerns about net, bringing Network Rail, putting Network Rail in charge of the new GBR organisation, they feel they feel certainly very reasonable to me. So why do you think it happened that the William Shap Review made the decisions that it did? especially as, it was, as they were being made literally at the same time as the bus strategy, which, as you say, sees a much more regionalised and devolved approach. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, maybe it's just an evolution. Maybe one was, you know, rail was already more controlled and so therefore the next step was even more control, whereas buses weren't controlled, so therefore it was a smaller step um, and it just felt more pragmatic. Yeah, absolutely. Well... We will watch you with interest, and I'm absolutely sure you will watch us with interest. So, Katie Taylor, thank you very much indeed for joining me on the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. And that concludes the Freewheeling Podcast for this week. Thank you very much indeed to my guest, Katie Taylor, Chief Customer and Strategy Officer at the Go Ahead Group, at least for the next couple of weeks. And thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next week. If you get a few minutes and feel like giving us a quick rate and review, that would be fantastic. Otherwise, I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks very much indeed. Bye.